This week we discuss the days of prohibition in the 80s, how COVID-19 may affect cannabis legislation, and how to bring on the cannabis renaissance where you live, coming up next on Critical Grass. Get it, man, and get with the countdown. Shake this square world and blast off for Kicksville. Critical Grass. It's stimulating, mind-expanding, safer to use than alcohol. It's the in thing, the hula hoop of the jet generation, and as much a part of growing up as smoking corn silk behind the back fence. Critical Grass. He's looked at both the pros and cons of blowing pot. He's not convinced that grass is all that harmful, but there is room for a lot of doubt. Why don't we wait and see? There's a lot of testing to be done before we'll know all the facts. Critical grass. I'm Andrew D'Angelo. My hometown is Oakland, California. I'm co-founder of Harborside, younger brother of Steve D'Angelo, and I've been doing this for 37 years. That little electronic intro was brought to you by Chris Ochi with a nice little jam titled Marooned. Because finding a techno track titled Quarantined as a result of getting caught up in the coronavirus madness while in a foreign country was a little challenging to find, so I went with a synonym instead. Apologies to anyone offended and or disappointed. But yes, this week we have none other than Andrew D'Angelo, whom you might recognize from his TV appearances on The O'Reilly Factor with Bill O'Reilly, or the reality TV show Weed Wars on the Discovery Channel alongside his older brother Steve D'Angelo. In addition to his TV appearances, Andrew also co-founded Harborside Dispensary, where he was director of operations up until a few years ago. Prior to that, he was vice president of Ecolution Inc., a hemp clothing company founded by his older brother as well. Additionally, he was involved in theater, acting, and film in the Bay Area, which has been his home for several decades now. Andrew and I originally were supposed to meet in Barcelona at this year's edition of Spanibus. However, due to the sudden shutdown of Europe as a result of the ongoing pandemic, that plan fell apart, the event was cancelled, and Andrew was marooned for a few days in beautiful Catalonia before he eventually returned to Oakland, where he's been quarantining with what I assume is some of the best dope in the world. When he's not doing transactional work with cannabis, he does political, educational, creative, and advocacy work to spread the gospel of mother cannabis throughout the world. Well, looking at his resume, he's been involved with cannabis for quite a while now, and I wanted to know when exactly he got bit by the cannabis bug. Steve being my older brother, 10 years older than me, I was fortunate that I had a lot of cannabis access at an early age. I, I was able to access cannabis. and But I was an athlete growing up, so I didn't even want anything to do with cannabis. Um, and then when I was 15, I got hurt. And my dream of being a professional athlete was over. 
And my brother saw that I was in a lot of pain one day at my mom's house. And he handed me a joint and said, this will make you feel better. And um, I got a little a little voice in my head said, you know what? Try it. So I tried the joint and instantly was bit by the cannabis bug. My mind opened up. I felt a lot better physically from my injury, and um, I was able to also understand that I was at a time in my life where I was 15 years old and the whole world was open to me, and I was going to be able to do a lot more with my life than just play sports. And it it was going to be hard for me to make that transition because I'd done nothing but play sports and be obsessed with sports up until that point. But cannabis really gave me the courage to start doing other things and and getting obsessed with the next thing that bit me, which was the acting bug and the theater bug. So I was quite young and, you know, I I started selling weed shortly after I started smoking it when I was 15. My brother uh, helped me with that. And, um, you know, the rest is history. I've been doing cannabis sales and transactions ever since. That's how I've made my living. So it turns out Andrew's sports injury was a bit of a blessing in disguise as it put the kibosh on his athletic career and, as a result, he had to look for an alternative path. Now, most parents would probably recoil in horror at the thought of little Johnny or Jenny growing up to become a dope dealer. However, if they knew that their son or daughter would go on to found California's largest pot shop and one of the world's most recognizable dispensaries, they might be willing to rethink their approach to raising their children. But before the glamour and fame of being a can of celebrity arrived, the D'Angelo brothers often landed in hot water with various authorities on the East Coast. I wanted to know at what point in his life did Andrew realize he was not getting the real story on cannabis? Well, I knew that at a much younger age. My brother, when he was 18, he got busted and he had to serve a, uh, a few months in jail. And I was about nine years old, eight, nine years old at that time. And um, I had to go visit him in, in jail. And um, we went to visit him. And it was one of these low security jails that was way out in the country of Virginia. Um, we drove out there and you had to be 10 years old. But my parents lied. And, and even though I was nine, they lied and said that, that I was 10. And uh, we and and we went into the special room. And, and before we went in, we had to wait. They always make you wait. For everything in, in the prison system, in the justice system, you wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. So we had to wait. And while we were waiting, the police, one of the police officers started lecturing me about making sure I never get like my brother and like I never go to jail like my brother and that I got to be smarter than that. And I can't be doing anything marijuana and cannabis and started lecturing me. Right. And he was like this big, fat redneck kind of cop and um really hard-nosed guy um and and then i had to talk to my brother right after this guy lectured me about my brother and so i go talk to my brother and you had to talk to him through a big thick plexiglass with a phone and um and i knew my brother wasn't bad i knew my brother was good and so there was immediately a big gap and disconnect between what the authority figure was telling me about my brother and what I knew about my brother. And he was in there for weed. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, I, I quickly learned at a young age that this whole thing was a bunch of BS and it was a lie and 
it wasn't real. And of course, Steve being my older brother, he also educated me at a young age about all this. And, you know, by the time I graduated high school, I, I was a well-schooled activist ready to hit my college with full force and advocate for legalized weed and a lot of other things. That This was during Ronald Reagan. This was quite some time ago. So, um, you know, we had a lot of battles to fight in those days, not just legalizing cannabis. There was nuclear war we had to worry about and, you know, um, quite a few other things. So it seems like the efforts of law enforcement concerning the drug war royally backfired as the younger D'Angelo was now prepared to take on the world with his newly acquired knowledge about the cannabis plant. Now, I'd love to see the reactions of those cops when they found out what he would end up doing once he got to California. Now, the drug war in the U.S. was launched under Richard Nixon back in 1971, but Andrew also got to enjoy the fantasy-based propaganda of conservative sweetheart and B-list actor Ronnie Reagan, heard here spreading more false information on cannabis. Leading medical researchers are coming to the conclusion that marijuana, pot, grass, whatever you want to call it, is probably the most dangerous drug in the United States, and we haven't begun to find out all of the ill effects but they are permanent ill effects. Given what we know now about cannabis, it's safe to say Ronald Reagan was probably completely full of shit and wanted nothing more than to control and punish people for using a plant someone told him was bad. But that's just a wild theory of mine. Andrew nicely describes what those days were like. Well, it's hard for people to imagine today just how intense the drug war was under Reagan. And when you said D.A.R.E. came into your school... They came into the school hard. OK, you'd have an assembly. Everybody would be in there. You know, the cops would come up in the full regalia of their uniform. They tell these horror stories about people dying from smoking weed, um, dropping dead, getting addicted, ruining their families. Um, and then you'd go into the classroom and they do it in there, too. It wasn't just the assembly. They do it in the classroom. They come in the classroom. They tell you these horror stories, and, you know, and then they try to get you to admit that you've taken weed, you know, in the classroom. They'd be as I know some of you smoke weed. Who smoked weed in here? I, I, I'm just trying to save your life. I'm just trying to help you. I'm just trying to save your life. This is a hardcore drug. This is like heroin, like you were saying, right? Um, and they would just scare the piss out of kids and, and they would confess right there on the spot. And then guess what? They had to leave the room and go to the principal's office. Um, so it was a hardcore time. People were snitching on each other. People were being encouraged to snitch on their friends in high school in those days. Um, snitch on their parents, you know, um, um, it was a really, it's hard for people to imagine that. And I'll tell, I'll, I'll just convey it using the story. When I went to college, I had this great t-shirt that had this giant day glow green pot leaf on it and weed leaf, cannabis leaf on it. And it was a black shirt. It was like one of those black light shirts that, you know, glowed under a black light and it was just gigantic. And, you know, I, Boldly and proudly put it on, you know, 1985, freshman in college, like second day of school. We're still in orientation and I'm walking through the campus and um, these, the, the campus police stop me and they, they take me into a separate room and they then they lecture me, man. They gave me this. They give me the same lecture I got when I was nine years old at the jail. 
<laughs> with my brother. And now I'm 18. And it was all I could do to contain myself. It was the second day of school, right? So I couldn't, you know, start throwing F-bombs and, and, and telling them exactly how I felt. <laughs> um, uh, but I just had to sort of sit there and go, okay, yes. Um, uh, I mumbled something about free speech and then I got out of there as fast as I could. Um, uh, and, and, and before I could get back to the dorm room several hours later, I got another lecture from an advisor, not a campus police officer, but an advisor about wearing the weed shirt. Uh, and they're like, it's only your second day of school. You want to make a good impression. What are you doing? Are you out of your mind? <laughs> and, um, and and so that's what it was like then, you know. So, yeah, you're right. It was kind of ballsy and risky. But, you know, I, I Steve D'Angelo being my older brother and, and just how I grew up and everything, it was a natural thing for me to do. It, it didn't feel like that ballsy. It just felt natural. Back in those days, there were plenty of lectures floating around mass media in the form of anti-drug propaganda. Anyone remember this little heartwarming exchange? Yours? No, I'm... Mother said she found it in your closet. I don't know. One of the guys was... Must have what? Look, Dad, it's Where not... did you get it? Dad, Answer I... me. Who taught you how to do this stuff? You, all right? I learned it by watching you. Parents who use drugs have children who use drugs. Or how about this legendary little doozy? Is there anyone out there who still isn't clear about what doing drugs does? Okay, last time. This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Because cracking an egg on a cast iron pan using an authoritative condescending voice just screams hard science. Andrew also mentioned D.A.R.E. going around schools with the hopes of getting kids to not use drugs, along with Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign. Now, D.A.R.E. stands for Drug Abuse Resistance Education, a cute acronym for what amounted to a rather ineffective campaign, which also had behind it something even worse— its founder, former Los Angeles police chief Daryl Gates, a bloodthirsty maniac and someone who desperately needed a hug, was described by the Los Angeles Times as someone who believed that he and the LAPD were doing the city's most important work and that they should be accountable to no one but themselves. His troops were arrogant and aggressive in their policing, and the cost was catastrophic. Many unarmed suspects were killed by officers who rarely had to answer for their actions. Among the many problems with these tactics were that they simply didn't work. During the 80s, for example, violent crime in L.A. grew at more than twice the national average. In 1986, Los Angeles had the highest number of reported violent crimes per 100,000 residents and the highest number of property crimes. Remember Rodney King and the L.A. riots in 1992? Yeah, all that happened as a result of Mr. Gates' policies. And if that wasn't enough... He also collaborated with the video game company Sierra Online to create a game called Police Quest Open Season, which involved mostly weapons and tactics training where you selected from an array of firearms and practiced your marksmanship on alleged bad guys. 
Now, I'm guessing they forgot to include de-escalation and community outreach training in the first few editions, as it wasn't great for ratings. At any rate, D.A.R.E. ultimately failed in getting people to not use drugs, but it was successful in stigmatizing people, which was another topic Andrew got to experience firsthand as a defender of cannabis use. For us, it's like this holy mission, right? Um, uh, and then, you know, family members or even friends, the stigma was so hard. I remember for 20 years, people would ask me, what do you do for a living? And there'd be like always a three to 10 second silence for me to figure out what the F I was going to say. And, I, you know, I'd usually say actor something like that, artist, you know, kind of creative, which I was, of course, I was those things. Um, but it's not how I put butter on my bread. <laughs> um, mm. That was pure cannabis all the way. Um, so just answering that question was a traumatic experience. What do you do for a living? If you were in the cannabis trade, that was like a really traumatic question. <laughs> and that was like question number one after what is your name <laughs> in the United States is what do you do for a living? <laughs> That's question number two. <laughs> uh, and so it, 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 for many years as a young man, I felt very awkward. Um, and I, I experienced a lot of shame um, um, and, I, and, and guilt. And I even put it on myself. I even, you know, a lot of times you'd be like, well, what the hell am I doing? There's got to be a there's got to be a way I can make a living that doesn't put me through this, this, you know, this terrible stigma and this terrible, like, how do you answer a simple question? Like, what do you do for a living? And, and this, 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 this hiding from the world all the time and, and making sure you don't get busted. And, you know, um, uh, so there, there were many, many times where I had to ask myself, what the hell am I doing? You know? Um, but the, the mission to spread the seed that'll save the planet was more important to me than some of those other considerations. You had to be a little crazy. You had to be, have a little bit of divine madness. <laughs> um, 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 you know, you, you did have to be a little bit of a maniac uh, in those days to, to trade cannabis. And, and we were. And I'm proud to say that actually now. Um, in those days, you'd question it and go like, God, am I just that shit crazy? Um, uh, but <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm glad I'm glad we, I'm glad we found the, 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 the way to do it. Yeah. So it seems like the stigmatization Andrew went through occasionally filled him with some self-doubt, and given the societal pressure at the time, it's not surprising. But his mission proved too important. And a pinch of craziness can go a long way, at least as far as staying dedicated to the cause goes. Which made me wonder, when did he realize he had a mission to fulfill? Well, I mean, I knew that, of course, when I first got turned on to the plan as a teenager. Um, but when it really hit home on a political society level that, OK, um, you know, we're going to be able to legalize cannabis and rebrand the plant from bad to good. That's we're still in that process right now. Right. But when Prop 2 fit, when actually when Proposition P it was called Initiative P, I think, um, passed in San Francisco in 1992. That was a city ballot initiative that Dennis Barone and his crew, Brownie Mary and them, put on the ballot. I was I was in grad school in San Francisco at that time. I was in acting school, and I was 
collecting signatures for it. Um, that was one of the first activist things I did as a young, 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 young actress, 21 years old. Um, and so we put on the ballot and we won in the city of San Francisco. And then Dennis opened the first cannabis dis- medical dispensary uh, ever, um, uh, um, or at least since Prohibition in 1937 in California prohibited cannabis, I believe, in 1915, 1916, something like that. Um, and so it's been a long time. And then he decided to scale that up for Proposition 215, at our face, the wind was now at our back, and we were going to be able to take that model to other places. And in fact, Steve and I were one of the first outside of California. We took that model to Washington, D.C. In, in November 1998, we won uh, medical in Washington, D.C. Um, it was not able to be enacted because the federal government stopped it, uh, refused to fund it, and so it couldn't be implemented. Uh, which got, actually is one of the things that got us out of D.C. into California because uh, we just needed to practice our craft and we couldn't do it there. Um, so so the, that's when we knew that, you know, things were going to change in the world. Um, and, and, and we knew we started to learn a lot more about how what an incredible medicine cannabis is, you know, Dennis and and. And all those folks learned about it through the AIDS crisis. But then we started to learn a lot more uh, in the 90s and in the, the, the first part of the first decade of this century. And, and we learned a lot about chronic pain. We learned a lot about um, how it helps PTSD. We learned a lot about how it helps with people with epilepsy. And the whole CBD thing happened. Um, uh, so... Uh, you know, it's been now we have to just make sure that um, we, we keep making progress. And even in a place like Poland, where you are, you know, uh, let's let's keep a little bit like a little bit. Every place is different. Every, every everywhere is going to have to have their own strategy, their own way of getting it done. Um, but, uh, you know, the medical strategies always worked real good for us. I mean, this helps people and you can get people in who are seriously ill in front of cameras and say, look, I need this. Um, and it, it, it creates empathy with the population and it changes hearts and minds. And, um, and so the medical strategy, I think, has always been a winner um, for us and, and you know, should be deployed <laughs> um, wherever we can. So those early small victories was when Andrew saw the light at the end of the tunnel though that tunnel turned out to last well over a decade, at least in the case of California. But using the medical aspect to argue your case turned out to be very effective in winning people over, and this strategy seems to be doing well in many other places too. Andrew explains here how progress on the cannabis front works and how to usher in the cannabis renaissance in places that may seem behind the curve. The way it always works is, first, someone tries to do something like you've just described they they initiate a law or a bill and it loses and then they try again and it does a little bit better than it did you know the first time it lost but maybe it still loses 
but maybe the third, fourth, fifth time it wins. Um, and that's, that's the pattern I've seen in more places than, you know, wins the first time. Um, so particularly in a country like Poland, like you said, the church is very influential and, and, and it's, you know, generally conservative culturally, you know, when it comes to psychoactive substances other than alcohol. (laughs) Um, but Poland could also do really well with industrial hemp. I know you grow a lot of flax there, um, uh, which is very similar plant to industrial hemp. And, uh, and it, there, there could be a really robust hemp economy. Um, cannabis grows beautifully in that part of the world, in the Czech Republic and Hungary, and 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 I'm sure in Poland uh, with the right strains and the right regions. Um, uh, so the cannabis renaissance will get there eventually. It's really hard to hold us back at this point um you know <laughs> you'll be able to import that soon enough and 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 smoke our kind bud from california and but you will be able to grow all kinds of other things that can be used more locally for you know not everybody needs the super kind weed some some people just need you know to mix the cbd weed with a little low THC weed and they're happy with that um you know so there's all kinds of different things that I think can be provided locally I I hope we have an ecosystem you know once all the berries have been knocked down um that includes everybody you know so um and 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 that's also got a big local presence and solution you know In these difficult times, especially looking at the state of the world and the entire political situation, things can seem very bleak and hopeless. But this will not last forever, and there is change happening. For example, cannabis dispensaries, even ones selling only CBD products, have been deemed essential businesses in many countries throughout the world, conservative Poland included. So even the authorities now recognize its potential health benefits. What happens after the pandemic is yet to be determined, but cannabis laws will only be a small fraction of the overall change we'll get to see once COVID-19 is brought under control. But getting back to California and other places with legalized cannabis, even there you still have problems that need to be addressed. Yes, and unfortunately when California legalized for adult use, we did a, a terrible job. So... We still have a lot of work to fix Proposition 64. The taxes are so high that we have not been able to create one market. The barrier of entries are so high that people have been working with this plant for generations are shut out of the market. Um, The legacy market or illicit market, I call it the legacy market. It it has 80% of the total market. Um, The legal market has only got about 20%. So we have a lot of problems. A lot of places banned cannabis in California after Prop 64 passed. So, um, so there's a lot of work to do to fix that, um, and there's a lot of work to do to get people out of prison. So, um, for cannabis, people are in prison for cannabis. So that's why we started the Last Prisoner Project. People can go to lastprisonerproject.org, learn all about our people we're trying to get out, um, learn about the prisoners, donate if you, if you have a few extra bucks to donate. Um, most of our donations are five, 10, $20. They're, they're not big donations. Um, so feel free to do that. It's harder for us to 
raise money right now um, with the virus and a lot of our people are getting sick in prison and, and, and because of the virus. And, you know, some of these folks did not, you know, they shouldn't just because they got busted with weed and they got convicted and they sent to jail, they shouldn't have a death sentence. Um, and they should have never been busted and sent to jail in the first place. So we're trying to get people out right now. So we have a petition on our website people can sign. It doesn't cost anything um, and, and hopefully helps us convince governors and, and, and other people let let cannabis prisoners out, nonviolent prisoners out. And, and even prisoners that have terrible, heinous, heinous crimes, if they've been in prison 20, 30 years and they're elderly, you know, I mean, come on. There, there comes a certain point where we just have to, you know. There's two and a half million people locked up in the United States. They could all die from this virus or a whole bunch of them. I mean, huge percentage of them um, if we don't um, do something about it. So uh, that's another thing we're working on. So so our work never ends. Even when you get legalization across the finish line, there's going to be all kinds of problems with it because you have to make all kinds of compromises with all kinds of people uh and to get it legalized in the first place and 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 creating taxes and frameworks and regulation and rules is not an easy thing for bureaucrats to do and elected officials to do and even us even us cannabis people to do so um we we, we the, the 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 work won't end for a while <laughs> And, um, and, you know, I'm lucky I don't have to run the day-to-day of, Cam- of Harborside anymore. I'm still, you know, a co-founder and I help a lot, uh, and I'm, but I don't run the day-to-day anymore. Um, we have a great team of people do that now. And, um, uh, uh, and so the Last Prisoner Project is one of many other projects I'm working on right now, but it's probably the most important one. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, so, you know, especially right now, it's kind of hard. People are making millions of dollars from cannabis, legal cannabis right now. And, uh, they're selling a lot more weed than people who are in jail for life for doing the same thing. So it's, it's, wow, it's so out of whack. Um, we have to fix it. So, so that's what we're trying to do. It's, you know, you fight a war to legalize and then you get it legalized and you have to fight a whole bunch of battles and little wars to fix it. Um, and that's going to that's just going to be the way it is. That's just going to be that's how change happens. Um, so so in my experience now we're learning with the virus that change can happen bigger and faster if we really try hard and we apply our will. We can. Um, and I, I hope we will after this, you know, change faster and bigger. You know, I like big change. I don't like little change. I have to say the Last Prisoner Project is a very noble thing for the D'Angelo brothers to be involved in, especially given their position in the cannabis industry. Their dispensaries are in several locations throughout the Bay Area. They are both well-known and recognizable personalities in the industry and beyond. They theoretically could take their money and comfortably retire in the mountains somewhere, yet they choose to help people in prison for nonviolent drug offenses. And now is the time, more than any other, to help release nonviolent offenders who potentially face illness and death because of a plan. So not to be negative or alarmist, but the situation is clearly very serious. Now, does Andrew see positive change coming out of the whole situation? Well, we could only hope. I mean, we have to 
folks like us that have been insisting for change and advocating for nature all these years have to speak louder and more clearly than ever. It's going to be a battle of new ideas right now because clearly the other ideas have failed completely and utterly. Um, it, you know, just, just completely. So I think we have an opportunity to reevaluate things and create a lot of change right now. Um, we also have an, uh, an opportunity to completely blow it and become authoritarian um, uh, and tribal um, and divided and hateful of one another. So both of those outcomes are before us. We're at a real crossroads here. This is just the beginning of this crisis. Um, we're already getting headlines of people we know and love that are dying here in America. That's going to get worse. Um, and I think there's great opportunity for the cannabis community and all people on Earth to create new ways of, of, of interacting and being that 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 put people first. So, yeah, I think there's great opportunity. I, I certainly hope we take advantage of it. I mean, just the air around my home office here is cleaner than it's been in a long time. And it's lovely to experience. <laughs> um, and, you know, millions of people are experiencing that right now. You cannot not experience it. It's so obvious and, and, and noticeable. So change will happen whether we like it or not. It's as inevitable as death or taxes. What form it takes, we have yet to see, but that could be the exciting part. We just have to sit tight, be patient, and hope we can affect this change when it becomes possible to act again. Now, taking into account all of Andrew's experience and achievements in the cannabis world, I wanted to know whether there have been any big surprises or major disappointments along the way. The thing that has probably sideswiped me the most is how badly... Prop 64 would fail as an operating system for adult use legalization in California. I, I knew we had a flawed framework because we had to compromise too much, or I don't know if we had to compromise or we just did compromise. Um, we had some very big funders who hired all these consultants and blah, 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 you know, um, but it, it really surprised me how hard it's been for our community to to be part of uh this legal system and to 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 and for this legal framework to work it's just not working so and i knew it was going to be flawed and i knew there was going to be some things that weren't going to work but it really surprised me to the extent of which it's failed and I feel bad because, of course, I advocated for 64. Um, and, uh, you know, after Prop 19 failed, uh, for those of your listeners who may not know, two years prior to Prop 64, we had Prop 19, which failed um, in a statewide vote to legalize for adult use. And, um, and after that failure, the federal government cracked down on us really hard and started busting dispensaries and shutting people down. Um, and they came after Harborside. They came after my brother. They came after me. Um, they came after our family. Um, so, wow, it was um, a disaster to lose. So we didn't want to lose again. Um, so when 64 came around, we 
we made some compromises and we got on the ballot and then once once it was on the ballot we had to we had to win so so um that was hard uh that was hard and 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 it it surprised me you know two years later now um it's it surprised me how how much pain that's caused so i'm working really hard to fix it a lot of smart people are and uh, maybe if our community steps up during this crisis um people and after this crisis people will start to see that having a cannabis dispensary in their neighborhood is really not so bad compared to something like a virus that closes your kid's school altogether. Um, and I think we may, the people, the problem is at the local level, nobody wants a cannabis dispensary in their neighborhood. And so um, uh, they fight it um, and then they win and they ban it and, and you can't get it done. And, only in the most progressive liberal places is it allowed and it's it's and that problem is going to happen all over the world all it's, it's happening all over the world i mean imagine in poland <laughs> would you like a dispensary in your neighborhood <laughs> <laughs> it only takes a very vocal a vocal minority of people who say no to stop it um we found here um so uh um uh so Sometimes something like a virus like this and, and, and the disruptions and pain it causes ca makes people rethink something like cannabis a little bit. And just like, you know, maybe because the whole thing's built on lies. So it's not that hard to make the whole house of cards fall in the minds and heart of somebody. It really isn't. Kid with epilepsy does it. You know, somebody dying of AIDS did it when we legalized 215 uh, in 1996. I mean, these things do it. <laughs> um, a recession and people are like, well, you know, I mean, <laughs> do we let our whole community go broke or do we allow a cannabis dispensary in it that we can tax and get a little revenue from? Well, <laughs> um, you know, and it changes. Uh, so I think that will happen. Yeah, I think it will in some places, maybe in a lot of places. You know, we'll see these terrible situations sometimes do create positive things come out of them, you know, and, and I don't want anything terrible to happen to anybody. You know, I hope it goes away right away. We all go back to normal tomorrow. But I do think there's some valuable lessons for humanity here and we need to grab them and, and, and learn from them. And legalizing weed certainly is one of them. Jeez. <laughs> Well, I certainly agree we finally need to start talking about legalizing on the federal level now that a good chunk of the country has permitted some form of cannabis, but at the very least, the cannabis industry can now claim to be essential to the health of humans and the economy. We got to keep fighting for that designation uh, uh, because um, uh, it's just very critical. That's our sacred mission, our number one job right now. Um, even the CBD, you know. Uh, every little bit of cannabis that people consume right now can help them uh, cope with what we're going through right now. I'm on day 13 <laughs> of my quarantine. And, you know, I haven't left the house really. I go in my backyard, um, uh, but I don't even want to go for a hike. Um, you know, I mean, I'm taking it really seriously. So um, uh, and it gets, you, you know, you get a little bit of cabin fever and, and the cannabis helps so, so much. I mean, so much. I can't even tell you, uh, um, what a hundred milligrams of uh, THC will do to just chill you out and 
make you understand that this moment, this too shall pass. Um, and, you know, be prepared, be safe, help out, cooperate. And, you know, if we if we hold hands, we'll get through this. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll have some dead to bury and some grief to, to experience together and comfort each other with, no doubt. Uh, but, you know, humanity is often at its best when it's in a when it has something like this to deal with. And I think the story like the grandmother with the Parkinson's disease sewing the, the, the protective gear, I think we'll see millions of stories like that. And they'll be very inspirational because now, unlike in 1918, when there was a terrible pandemic, everybody's connected um, and, and we'll be able to share all these stories and inspire each other. And, um, and, you know, where the government's failing, go around them uh, and provide our own solutions and where the government's, you know, succeeding, join them and, and help them make it happen. Some very fine words of hope and encouragement to end our conversation. So if we want to get a hold of Andrew, where do we go? Yeah, I have a website, andrewdangelo.com. You can reach me at andrew at andrewdangelo.com. That's D-E-A-N-G-E-L-O. Uh, so, and I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, it's Andrew under slash D'Angelo on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm on LinkedIn too. Those are the main platforms I use. And finally, we say farewell. Andrew D'Angelo, thank you so much for taking the time out of your irregularly scheduled quarantine to uh, talk <laughs> shop with me today. Uh, I had a blast and uh, good luck with Harborside and the Last Prisoner Project. And uh, who knows, maybe I'll see you in Spain or uh, perhaps even Oakland. I hope so. Next time you come to Oakland, look me up, Al. I'd like to give you the grand tour of Harborside. It's been great being with you and your community today. Everybody be safe out there. That was that for episode 36. A million and one thanks once again to Andrew D'Angelo for imparting some very fine wisdom and for the wonderful conversation. We hope to get back to Oakland soon. If you like this podcast, please share with your friends and loved ones at a socially safe distance on the interwebs. We look forward to your comments, questions, and even complaints. We literally have all day now. If you feel inclined, you can support the show either through Patreon or PayPal. Just follow the links on our website. We will be back soon with yet another awesome guest, so stay tuned. My name, once again, is Bogdan. Don't forget to cannabinate yourselves. Ciao.